Our Father, the heavens declare your glory. Skies your craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak, and night after night they make you known. Every sunrise, every sunset, a testament to the magnificent of glorious, glorious power. Even the colors sing of your artistry. These heavens speak without a sound or a word. Their voice never heard, and yet their message has gone throughout the earth. Their words to all the world. Every time a bud breaks forth on a branch, there's testifying going on about the giver of life. Every time a daffodil breaks through the soil, there's a testament going on about who you are and the kind of delight you want to give us even in this world. Every time you lift us up when we're down, you remind us that in the midst of seven and a half billion people, that we still matter to you. And every time we go through <clears throat> the valley of the shadow of death, we need to be there because that's the place we learn that we cannot be solo performers. We worship you this morning. We worship you, we glorify, we magnify your holy name. There is no one like you, never will be, never was. From everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. We want you so much to meet with us this morning. Un, uh, undo from within us the power of the Holy Spirit that we might hear things in a way perhaps that we've not heard before, that you might be transforming our hearts from uh, so we're going to sing later from the inside out. And that our hope might be all over again, uh, based upon, founded upon, not ourselves and our own efforts, but on Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> These your kids? These your kids? Your kids ever look like that? No. My kids come to the door like that. I'm like, I don't know who you are. Go find your mother. <laughs> kids love to get dirty, if they're permitted to anyway. I, I grew up in a home that, wasn't, that was not accepted. And if I come in with green stains on my knees and my jeans, my mother's like, what are you doing? Don't tell her I said this. She, was a, she had a problem with dirt. If I came in the house with dirty hands and got dirt on the counter or the sink or on the towel, if I didn't wash my hands adequately, that was going to be a problem. And the stickies were especially bad. You know, the kids come in, lollipop, some of it's in the mouth, but pretty much everything else is on the face, on the hands, in the hair. And that for me, that's always when I say, go see your mother. <laughs> Uh, as I, do, I did get that from my mother, the, I, the aversion to the stickies. Uh, but my mother, she's all about cl clean, cleanliness. Uh, clutter, not so much, um, but cleanliness. She still gets up every Thursday. 
she and dad live in this little apartment in our house and every Thursday morning is cleaning day and if they're going away at nine o'clock they have to get up extra early to clean because you you can't clean any other day (laughs) gotta be Thursday I don't know what happens but bad things happen if you don't clean on Thursday so anyway this this little sticky gene fell to me and unfortunately I passed it along to my son Travis and that's difficult when you have five small young children. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I, watch, I would watch him sometimes uh, at our house and our family get-togethers and see a child coming to him with thickies and just kind of see him go, <laughs> just a little bit. And I'm like, that's my son. <laughs> These kids aren't too concerned about the dirt. They're smiling. It, If I looked like that, I'm like, ooh, I need to find water. (laughs) But they don't even think about that they're dirty. Vince Lombardi, famous coach of the Green Bay Packers for almost 20 years, was well known for his pep talks at the beginning of the season. Back to basics. And he'd give them the rah, 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 we're, gonna, we're really going to nail the competition this year. We're going to win so many games, pumping them up. And then he'd lean over, and he'd pick up a football, and he'd go, gentlemen, this is a football. And what we're going to talk about this morning, you're going to say, some of you are going to say, oh, that's old hat. That's ah, been there, done that. Not that captivating, not that interesting. This is a football. This is the gospel. Luke chapter 18. Verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, Jesus says, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be Exalted. I'm convinced there is no other story Jesus told that has greater possibility of confusing good people. That there's no other story that Jesus told that is more confrontational to church members than this is. No other story that Jesus told that offers more hope to people who have read in their record. No other story that Jesus told that puts the gospel so bluntly. Two men, the story goes, came to seek God. 
In this case, they went to the temple. Two very, very different men. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, if you've grown up in church or you've grown up in Sunday schools, you've been to Bible studies, you instinctively know that the Pharisee in any story that Jesus told in any record of the gospel writers is the bad guy. You even heard it in how I recounted how he prayed. Oh, God. He's the guy to watch out for. He's the guy to disdain. He's the guy to despise. And yet the, and yet the Pharisees of the New Testament were our kinds of folks. These were the people who loved the Bible, who knew the scriptures inside out, upside down and backwards. These were the ones who kept the word of God scrupulously. These were the people who would have been the pillars in the community, probably married to very gracious wives and their children, well-behaved and clean. These are the people that you might have invited home for dinner and you would have wanted to make friends of. This might have even been the kind of guy that you would have said, yes, sure, you can date my daughter. Our kind of folks. The Pharisee, thinking about what he might have been like today, would have been an outstanding church member. An outstanding church member. Now, the tax collector, on the other hand, first of all, the tax collector's, um, the kind of person he was is lost to us because my guess is that none of you have an IRS agent on your enemies list. You might if you've been audited, but in most cases, we're like, I don't really want to see any of those guys, but they have their jobs to do. I, I really, I'm neutral about the tax collector. But in Jesus' day, tax collector was a different character. It says in verse 10 that the tax collector was despised. Why was that? Tax collector, <clears throat> if you can think about someone who might sell out your country for money to another country, a trader, you might have a little idea how they thought about this guy. He was one who conspired with Rome to turn around and fleece his own people, overcharge them, and become filthy rich in the process. Nobody was hated by the Jewish people quite like the tax collector. The Romans were awful, but this, after all, was their own kind of guy, their own people selling them out. As I thought about this this week, I thought, what, um, what kind of folks would be the equivalent of a first century tax collector to us? And I thought, you know, I ended up with three kinds of people. And this is probably true whether you're uh, rich, poor, or somewhere in the middle. Uh, whether, you're Ameri uh, uh, whether as an American you are um, Hispanic or African-American or Caucasian or Asian or whatever, uh, whether you're a millennial or a seasoned citizen like me or somebody in the middle, that we all have three folks who are like, we all agree on these are bad people. Bigots, rapists, and pedophiles. These are the really, these are the bottom of the barrel folk, the scum of the earth. And so when we think about tax collector this morning, I think it's helpful for us to think about a pedophile. This would not have been the guy you would have invited home. This has not been the kind of guy that you would have wanted to want to make a friend of. This is not 
for sure the kind of guy you would have welcomed asking your daughter out on a date. Two guys seeking God. And the one thanks God for making him good. I thank you, God, for making me good. And everybody here says, that's disgusting. I would never do that. Wrong. You have. And so have I. Every time we look at someone and think, why can't you just be like me? We've done that. Every time we've read a news story about someone who has committed some horrific crime, did you see about the shootings in New Zealand on Friday in the two mosques? Almost 50 dead, many, many more wounded. One white supremacist did, the, did all the damage. And we look at people like, how can you do that? We've prayed the Pharisees' prayer. Why? Because we think we're good. Thank you, God, that you have made me good, and I just wish you'd make these other people good as well. Meanwhile, down here is the tax collector or our pedophile, and he is crying out to God, beating himself on the chest, this sign of deep anxiety, saying, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. He is begging God for mercy because he's bad. Thank you, God, for making me good. Please, God, have mercy on me because I'm bad. Only a person who sees their dirt goes looking for water to clean up. Two men seeking God. And the horror of this story for those of us who consider ourselves good comes in verse 14. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. The tax collector got saved. The pedophile got saved. To, ju uh, to be justified means to be declared innocent before God. Got saved. And I think most of us would say, praise God. Our theology allows for that. That God can take the worst of the worst and he can make them children of God. But the Pharisee not saved? That's not right. I have a problem with that. Why would this good man who is faithful to his wife, who doesn't cheat the people he does business with, who gives a tenth of his income, who fasts twice a week, this is a man who's clearly desiring to seek the Lord and to please the Lord. How can he not be saved? The answer is in verse 9. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Who had what? Say it out loud. Great confidence in their own righteousness. Say it again. Great confidence in their own righteousness. 
Turn to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Some of you have memorized this verse. The prophet says, we are all infected and impure with sin. He doesn't say the criminals are infected and impure with sin. He doesn't say Muslims are infected and impure with sin. He doesn't say that people from the wrong side of the tracks are. We are all infected and impure with sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Now again, if you've been brought up in church culture, you've probably heard this verse and you know it. But do you know what it says? Buckle up. The language that the prophet uses here speaks of menstrual menstrual cloths. And God is saying, you have these good deeds that you perform, and it's not at all that those are bad things to do. But you put those deeds, you mount them in a frame, you double mat them, you keep the glass over them well cleaned and polished, you mount spotlights above them so that they can shine on your good deeds. You want people to see them. You want to be reminded of them yourselves. And most of all, you want me to see them, God says. And you have somehow forgotten that they are filthy and disgusting in my eyes. Now again, we say, how could that possibly be? You go all through the scripture and God says over and over again, do that which is right. Do good things. Do good deeds. But remember the problem was in verse 9. Who are confident in their own righteousness. In other words, he's talking about people who bring to God the good things they have done as payment and they stand before God with their arms overflowing with meals they have taken to other people with the servings they have done on the worship team and the mornings that they have ushered and the Bible studies they've gone to and and led and the way they have nurtured their children and talked to them about the Lord and their arms are full as they stand before God and as they come into the doors of the church and they say, God, here I am with all that I have done for you and God says, you don't get it. Goodness can't save anyone but goodness is always trying to convince us it can. John Gerstner, who was a mentor to R.C. Sproul, professor at Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh for many years, passed away almost a quarter century ago. He says, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins. 
It's your damnable good works. And he didn't use damnable as a curse word. He used it, used it as an adjective. It's clinging to your good, good works as the, in the hope that, in the confidence that, they will save you. And this might be startling to you, but those of you who have a checkered past, or maybe there's nothing checkered about it, it's just routinely and uniformly ugly. I think that's a blessing. And here's what I mean. You come from a background marked by sexual promiscuity, crime, time in prison, broken marriage, occult practices, hating God, atheism, you name it. You probably came to God with no illusions that you had anything to offer. And conversely, for those of us who have nice pasts, good vanilla lives, may be cursed. And what I mean by that is those vanilla lives lie to us. They tell us that surely God is unconcerned about the little pride, the small amount of lust, the occasional malice. Few white lies we tell him every now and then. He's unconcerned about all that when so many more serious sins that mark the people around us, he has to judge. And I wonder, good church member, good church attender, how many times you have stood in this auditorium and sung words like, I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. And you're thinking, when are we going to get done with this singing? I don't like to sing. You're looking around. Can't wait to just get beyond this and hope Keith will preach just a little shorter today than he usually does. By the way, I am. So we can move on to other things that really matter. And I know some of you don't like to sing, and I get that. But my, my point is, if you are not captivated by that, if you, if you look at filet mignon as if it's cotton candy or jello, been there, done that, heard that before, nothing to see here. Give me something new and exciting about how my husband and I or my wife and I can have a marriage without yelling at each other all the time and, and, and tell me how to have a successful business and, and I'd like to know who the four horsemen of Revelation 6 is, are. I'm nervous. I'm nervous because geography 
geography. And what I mean by that is showing up in a church building is an incredible, amazing dulling of the, our sensitivities to the work of God in our lives. What I mean by that is simply by virtue of showing up in this place, we can be dulled to the fact that everyone, no matter who they are, no matter where they've come from, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, is broken. And absolutely unable to fix themselves. Because we tend to compare ourselves to people who are worse than we are and think we're pretty good. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount, beginning of verse 21. And I'm imagining as Jesus had all these people sitting around on the hillside there overlooking the Sea of Galilee, that when he said this, they gasped, probably out loud. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter. And we might say, aha, see? If I perform right, do the things God wants, I will enter into heaven. Okay, hold that thought. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. Think about that. Supernatural stuff is happening. They're giving words from the Lord. They're performing miracles uh, in his name. They're, they're casting out demons. And Jesus says, I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. And again, we say, ha, ah, see? If I don't break God's laws, I'm good. If I keep the Ten Commandments, I'm good to go. If I do the things that I read about in the New Testament, I'm good to go. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus finishes preaching. Verse 28, and the people reply, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Just stop there. Look at me. Do you hear what people are saying? Just tell us what the right thing is to do. That's what I need. This is what I need to know. I need to know what it is that's going to take me from where I'm at to where God wants me to be. I want to know what God has, has in store for me that I can leave where I am. I can leave behind who I am to do what he wants me to do. And read the next verse. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. And some of you, probably many of you are going, yes. But there's a handful that are saying, what? I bought a book this week, just written last year by a guy named Dean and Sarah. Its title is Troubling, The Unsaved Christian. He quotes a friend. Dean um, ended up getting, coming out of seminary and getting a church in the heart of the Bible Belt down south. 
And he was so frustrated. He was so dismayed. He had some friends that were going into the, you know, the godless Northwest and, and to some of the hard, hard places around the nation. And, and he met up with one of these friends. And he was sharing his envy with him. He said, I, I can't believe you got to go here. And I'm going to the Bible Belt where everybody's saved already. And his buddy said this. He said, don't you know the hardest place to do ministry is in the Bible Belt where everybody thinks they're saved? And this is what he said. You have to get them lost before they can actually be saved. You have to get people lost before they can actually be saved. The humble, humbled will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. If, if I'm as filthy as those children were in the photograph, the only reason I'm going to go to God's well of mercy is if I come to believe I'm dirty. If I believe I'm clean, I'm not going to get near water. I'm not going to get near mercy because I don't need mercy. This is a football. This is the gospel. Not I, but Christ. Would you bow your heads with me for a minute? Last fall, I read a quote by Billy Graham that I'd never heard before. He said it years ago, and I desperately hoped he wasn't even close. He said, I suspect that only 25% of the people in any given church are actually saved. Now, Billy Graham is not George Barna. He's, he doesn't do surveys, and he doesn't do actual analysis. And so I'm not going to bank on his statistics but he was a man who worked with a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, a lot of people. And it terrified me not to think that in my church, in our church, as well as any other church, there could be 75% of the people who think they're saved that aren't. No, what terrified me was that there might be 25% or even 10% of the people in our church who think they're saved but aren't. That shook me to the core. And part of the reason it did was because many of you know that that's, that's the way I was for 14 years. Thought I was saved. I did a lot of church stuff. I wasn't. I was as lost, as lost, as lost as the pedophile. And I wonder if some of you this morning listening to what Jesus has to say would be able to come face to face maybe for the first time in your life that what you are banking on ain't the right thing. And that you really don't rejoice when we sing songs about cross of Christ, what he's done for us, 
Because really, that's something somebody else needs, not you. If that's the case, pray after me in your heart. God, I've never really dealt with the fact that I'm flawed enough that I have no hope of cleanliness apart from Jesus. I've never really dealt with the fact that the good things I do are being accumulated so that I can present them to you on my behalf rather than as offerings of gratitude. The blood does not impact me that my Savior shed because I really haven't felt I needed to be saved the way some other people do. I do things out of duty. I do things because I should. And sometimes I lose heart when I do them because I just want to be left alone. Because the goodness of the gospel not grip me because I don't see its need. Forgive me. I repent this morning and I cast myself not just 98% but 100% on the work of Jesus Christ died, rose again to save not just pedophiles but upstanding church members like me. And by your grace, I will live in the power, not of Keith, but of Christ. All the days of my life, I will work under the power of the Holy Spirit out from inside me instead of the dull drudgery, the performance on the outside. It's about me instead of you. Thank you that you are able to save even me. In Jesus' name, amen.